0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to our text for this morning, which is Amos chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Amos chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, you can. Find this text in the Old Testament right around page 651. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Amos, and I hope that you, like I, have been mining rich truth about God that transforms our daily lives. That's really what we are about as we walk through the word of God. We want to know God, and we want our knowledge of God to be ever-changing us. And in our pursuit of knowing God, one of the most important questions we can ask is what does God love? What are the kinds of things that he loves, the kinds of things that he envisions or purposes to be a part of the lives of his people? Well, I have found that one of the ways that you can know what someone loves is by watching for what that person hates. I hate stomach bugs. I've hated it more and more as the children in our house have increased in number. It's nothing but trouble. But when, it, when you boil it down, I hate stomach bugs because I love cleanliness. I love clean carpet and clean sheets and I love to be able to go to church and take the whole family. I love to be able to go out and do fun things. And that just stands in the way. I'm sure that if you thought about your own life, you would have things like that that you hate. But they indicate to you the things that you love. This is also true of our God. And this is the way that we often learn things about God. If you want to know what God loves, you can listen for what he hates. We learn more and more about God as we walk through his word, and we have the honor and the joy, the gladness of becoming like him. So as we look at this text this morning, I want you to see that we can draw God's love from God's hate in this text, that we would find even just three, there are many more, Three things that God loves by seeing the way that he interacted with his chosen people Israel at this point in redemptive history when he was bringing discipline upon them because they were doing certain things that he hated. This morning, we're going to see three of those things and in turn, three things that God loves Now, this is going to sound, of course, as we do this, a little negative because each of the three points that we consider this morning from the word of God are are going to be things that God hates. But, But I hope that in your heart and mind, you can take those in and see through them to the very heart of our God, to his greatness, his glory, his magnificence, that he is superior and different than anyone else and that we want to be like him. Well, here's the first. As we come to this passage in Amos chapter 3, we find here as he is continuing to detail the experience of judgment or discipline upon his chosen people, that God hates the practice of violence, which seems to have become something that was characteristic of the nation of Israel in this time, because listen to what he says about them. He says in verse nine, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great panic within her and the oppressions in her midst. Here in this first verse or so what we are seeing is that God is calling the people of Ashdod and Egypt. These were two other places that had become known and had been judged by the same kind of oppressions. And they are being called to go up onto the the roofs of the citadels and to look out upon the people of Israel and to become witnesses of their judgment that they would become witnesses to pass judgment and to declare and to recognize the evils, the oppressions in her midst, and therefore the great panic that they were in because they had drifted so far from their God. Ashdod and Egypt are called as witnesses. How devastating would this be If people who stood for the very things that you stand against were called to be witnesses in your trial for having done the same things they did, these are not the people that you want coming and bringing witnesses. There there is an enormous humiliation in that because it's not only that they're being compared to them, they're actually passing judgment on them. This is a right, I believe, that God has given even to the world because we know that the people in the world can see the way that Christians live. And therefore, God even allows them to pass judgment on us. If we're not measuring up to the truth that we proclaim we believe, or if we're not living like the God that we say we worship, it's a humiliating place to be. It's a deplorable place to be. But notice that it's even worse. The judgment declared upon them. Israel had become so caught up in their misdeeds that God says they do not even know how to do what is right. It's right there in verse 10. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and devastation in their citadels. The Bible often uses different analogies to describe the Christian life and especially the spread of sin. One of those is yeast working its way through a lump of dough. We've talked about bread before because you know how I love it. But when you think about yeast, how does it spread through the lump? Well, the yeast begins eating up all of the sugars and then expanding with carbon dioxide, which is making that bread rise, and it's slowly filling throughout the entire lump. That's the same kind of picture of what has happened here with the lump of the people of Israel. The yeast of sin, of their oppressions, of their violence, of their drifting from God did not just come to a certain point and then just sort of fizzle out. It continued to spread and spread and spread until this incredible statement is made about them. They don't even know how to do what is right. Now I see in that not just a statement about the nation of Israel at this time, but I see in that a statement about me. Statement about you when we were apart from Christ. We didn't even know how to do what was right. That's why any kind of self salvation, any kind of self forgiveness, any kind of self repentance or self mustering of faith is completely absurd to the Christian worldview because sin is so bad, it's so pervasive that it trickles down to every part of us. It's depraved all of us such that we're stuck in our sin and we don't even know how to do good. We don't know how to get out of it. But just as we said earlier, what God hates magnifies what God loves. Even in this, it magnifies God's incredible grace toward us. The reality of how great our sin was, how it had filtered through all the parts of us, really puts on display the marvelous mercy and grace, the transforming power that God has worked in us by faith in Christ. For people who, who didn't even know how to do right and could not save themselves and could not repent on their own and could not express their faith on their own, God has done it in us. He's done it for us and we see yet again just how wonderful he is. Well, in this text, we're seeing something about violence, and we're seeing that God hates it. He hates the practice of violence. You hear it in those words about the oppressions in her midst, storing up violence and devastation in their citadels. The citadels would be the places where where all of the spoils of violence or war in any of the nations would be collected. It was the place where where their conquering was celebrated. And here Israel has been storing up this violence and devastation and God says that he hates it. Now as we continue to move forward into the scriptures and, and suddenly now the Lord himself comes on the scene and we get to see what he is like. That he is meek. That he is lowly, that he is a servant, that he is humble, that he is gentle. Just as we recently studied in ABF, gentle and lowly, we get to see God's love for gentleness. God's love for sacrifice on behalf of other people. From the shepherds to the sheep, God promotes peacemaking. He promotes grace. He promotes mercy and long-suffering. Listen to this text from Titus. It says, For the overseer, that's the pastor or the elder, the, the shepherd of the sheep, must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, Not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined, holding firmly to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. You hear in these kinds of passages the declaration of what the shepherds of the sheep are to be like. What are they to be modeling? not quick-tempered, not what the Bible calls pugnacious, not being a fighter, not being a conflict starter, but a peacemaker because he has this view also in mind for his sheep, for the sheep of his flock. Listen to what it says then in another passage in Romans 12. It's talking now about us as sheep who belong to God under these kinds of shepherds. Verse 16, but of the same, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What an incredible picture God is giving to us about what the Christian life is to look like. The Christian life is to look like Christ. And therefore, here in this text, in the the book of Amos, God is declaring his hatred for these things because they're not in accord with what he loves. It says in verse 11, therefore, this is what the Lord God says, an enemy, one surrounding the land, will take down your fortifications from you, and your citadels will be looted. You're hearing the kinds of things that God hates. You're hearing the kinds of things that God loves. And here, first and foremost, we want to take away this love of peacemaking. In fact, it's so important to us that we've even carved out specific stretches of time in ABF and YBF, in our community groups, even to have discussion about these things so that we can learn to, as we're studying in this semester, pursuing peace with one another. That we would be known as peacemakers, peacemakers in our home, peacemakers in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, everywhere that we go, that we would be found to be in that way and many others like Christ. Now I have to confess with you and I hope that you would confess with me that for all of us, that's just often not the case. There's still remaining sin in our hearts. There's still this lure to be different than God, to go our own way, to stand up for yourself, to fight for your rights, to to push out and dominate other people so that you can be top dog. But here God continues to do this work in us. How gracious of him to keep making us peacemakers. We wanna be ambassadors of the God who loves peacemaking. That's first. So if you want to take this text and put it into practice this week, give some time specifically, and you're, you're really primed to do it because of ABF and having the book Pursuing Peace right in front of you. Spend time really engaging with your own heart and life before God on how you are or how you may need to become a peacemaker. Someone who intentionally goes out of his or her way to pursue peace. That's the first use of our text this morning as we come to the second thing that God hates through which we want to see what God loves. As is often the case, violence, the kind of violence that's pictured here in the book of Amos, goes hand in hand with a certain type of living. It's a kind of living that is Opulent. It is extravagant. Just as you've heard that their citadels were filled with the loot of their violence and their oppressions, that's often what we see even today in our world. We see that those who are willing to, to run roughshod over other people, to scrap to the very top of the mountain, to dominate and conquer anyone else that they have to in order to gain more and more, their violence becomes synonymous with a kind of living, and it is a kind of living that God hates. It's a kind of living that violence enables, and that's why we see here that God hates a self-exalting lifestyle. Now, this can very much have to do, as we see in the text this morning, it can have to do with possessions, it can, it can have to do with, with the kind of of cars that we drive or the houses that we have. But it doesn't have to be that. But rather, it has more to do with our hearts, with the self-exalting lifestyle that's always striving to be more, to be seen more, to have more, to enjoy something of the world more, to be set apart by those characteristics rather than the characteristics of Christ. And therefore, we see this next, that God hates this self-exalting lifestyle as we read these words. This is what the Lord says. Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth, this is gruesome, a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel living in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of armies. This is very serious and it can be a little confusing. So what exactly does this mean? Well, the first thing that we know from the Bible is that the world left to themselves, just as we were apart from Christ before we became Christians, cannot see the riches of knowing Christ because they are blinded by other riches of the world, often the riches that are offered of worldly ease or or extravagant kind of living and enjoyments. Israel, even, like the surrounding nations, had become distracted, even consumed by the sensualities and extravagances of this opulent, dominating, self-exalting kind of life. It is as much a statement about their spirituality as of anything. Now, Amos uses here this analogy. It's a gripping analogy to help us understand and to drive home this point. He talks here in verse 12. This is the part that may be confusing to us when we and we just read through it. But if we take our time and break it down piece by piece, it can make more sense. He's referring to an analogy of shepherding again, that there are under shepherds who work for a master caring for the flock in the field. And while there were dangers out in the field that could come by night or by day and could snatch away some of the sheep, the shepherds remained responsible for whatever happened to the master's flock. Therefore, if any of the sheep went missing and were lost from the count, in order for the undershepherds to be found innocent and not guilty of, say, stealing one of the sheep for himself or taking it and selling it for his own personal gain, he would have to show proof That actually he was not the one who took it, but some wild animal came in and took it. And the best way to do that is just as you read in verse 12, to show a few bits that were left over. So here, just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple legs or a piece of an ear that he could bring to the master and say, see, it was torn limb from limb. There was nothing that I could do. It wasn't my fault. So the sons of Israel living in Samaria will be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. So capture the analogy here. The analogy is that just as those under shepherds steal bits of those sheep to prove that's what they were, here there is is evidence of who the nation of Israel was. So they have the same kind of, kind of bits that, that, that point to who they were. But the question is, what is it that pointed to them? What was the evidence of their lives? Now, you watch the news right now, you can see that we're growing more and more infatuated with outer space. Jeff Bezos has taken a trip with a couple other people, I think even the oldest person to ever go into outer space and the youngest 18 years old flying on a 28 million dollar ticket how much badly do you want to go into outer space and 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 find whatever you're looking for to pay 28 million dollars there are nations racing to try to find evidence of life somewhere else we've got reports from the pentagon coming out about ufos and what that could mean seems like for a long time Ever since we've started looking out into outer space, we've been really curious about maybe there's life. Is there life on Mars? Is there extraterrestrial ET kind of life out there? Well, how would you know? How would you know if there was life out there? How would you know if you were to go to Mars and find some kind of evidence? What would that evidence be? Would you find giant eyeglasses? Would you find an alien probe? Would you find a discarded earth suit? What would it be? But That's what we're looking for. We're trying to find evidence of life. That's exactly what this text is about, but in a much more serious, much more eternal way. What is the evidence of your life? The kind of creature that you are, If you were, God forbid, to have your life snatched away by a lion, but yet the shepherd could pull out a few bits of you, what would they be? What would come back to say this is proof that he or she was here? What kind of evidence would it be? For Israel, the Lord says the evidence will be the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch, exclamation mark despite the riches of their religious heritage in Yahweh, the covenant God, listen to this. The evidence would not be temple artifacts, proving their worship or scrolls of scripture. What would the evidence be? Beds and couches and pillows, signs at the time of luxury, of idleness, of sensuality. You see, this is a striking, striking analogy, and it's striking to me. I hope that it's striking to you because we see here the Lord is saying that Israel had been drawn away by worldly pleasures rather than drawn to him by heavenly delights. Even look down at verse 15. The Lord will destroy or strike the winter house together with the summer house. You're getting a picture of the kind of life that they lived. It's believed that this kind of house had two levels on it. There was a winter house on the bottom and there was a summer house on the top so that at different times of year you could go to one or the other. He goes on and he says the houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. This kind of living, born on the backs of violence and oppression, was something that God hated. Because he he hates self-exalting lifestyles, but he loves God-exalting lifestyles. He loves lives that when, when the bits are pulled from the lion's mouth, they are bits of him. They're bits of his ways, of his character, of his grace, and his mercy, of his power, of his testimony, of his glory because this way of living that we're reading about this morning is not the way of Christ. God in Christ completely redefined the idea of wealth and happiness in his world in response to the fall of man, which impressed upon the flesh an allure that lasts even to this day of shiny objects, of gold and silver, of amassing wealth in that way. But Christ came without those things. He brought intentionally true riches to our true poverty. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Listen to what it says about Christ on his mission. Listen to what it says about us. Listen to what it says about him. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, and that's an understatement, though he was rich, the king of glory, the king of the kingdom, yet for your sake, he became poor. There's such an incredible difference between the Jesus of heaven and the Jesus of earth. The Jesus of heaven seated on a rainbow circled throne with with, with angels worshiping, singing, holy, holy, holy. But then think about the life on earth. He comes and incarnates as a human into our world and and a poor human at that. Not even having a place to lay his head. But he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Becoming poor, even the poverty of the cross that he would give his life away, that he would would not exalt himself, but exalt his father. And to give his life and to die in the place of sinners like us is an incredible, incredible miracle. It's an incredible exchange. But it's an exchange, even as we read in that verse in 2 Corinthians, that tells us what you have to know in order to have his riches you have to know that you're poor. You have to know that you in and of yourself are utterly bankrupt. Because if you come to him with any kind of riches of your own, if you come to the table and slide some chips over or some gold and silver over or any other thing in your life as though you're going to pay part of your salvation, it's off. You have to come in poverty. You have to come In bankruptcy. This really sums up the problem and the solution that we're reading about here in Israel. They confused, like many of us have, materials with riches and gladness. They thought they were rich, but when actually they were spiritually bankrupt. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ came in poverty, though he was rich, to bring riches to those who were truly, truly poor, and even by his grace to show them that they were poor so they would come to him. And so it brings us to a really pointed question for me to answer in my life. And any question that I have to answer, you have to answer. What evidence of you do you want us to pull from the lion's mouth? When it comes time to show the evidence of your life, to prove your existence, to identify who you are and who you were, what legs, what bits will be pulled? I enjoy... So many gifts, and rightly so, all of us should. So many gifts that God gives to us. In fact, the Bible says that he has given us all good things, all of these gifts, so that we would enjoy them. But sometimes I find those earthly enjoyments veil my eyes, even for a moment or longer, from what's real and good. I hope if you pulled me from the lion's mouth, you don't find my iPhone, which I really enjoy and I put to good use every day. I hope that you don't pull from the lion's mouth my love of Netflix documentaries or my writing app, which I love and use every day. Those are good things. There's nothing wrong with those things but God forbid that those things be characteristic of me. I hope you find my children. I hope you find my wife. I hope you find my church. I hope you find some very specific books that I love and cherish and have rejoiced in. I hope you find my Bible. What would we find of you? You know, at the same time, I know it's inevitable. Hopefully you know it's inevitable. That if anyone were to pull bits from the lion's mouth of any of us, they are most certainly going to pull back some trash. But that, again, magnifies the grace of God in that we are, we are ever-changing, we're ever-growing. There's always something in us that God is working to, to eradicate and replace with these beautiful, good, lasting things. Well, I want to encourage you at this second point with this application of the text that you would also spend some time this week thinking about that lion's mouth. What will be left to mark you that you were here? It's another way of saying, what would people say about you? What would people remember about you when you're gone? We do know this from this text, and it's an important point for us to to gain about our God, that God loves when we live in freedom from the world's trappings. All of these little shiny objects that are held out in front of us, and we chase after them, and we want to have them because they they make us feel a certain way, or we, we, we hitch our righteousness to them. This is what makes me someone in the world. But rather that we would enjoy those gifts but that we would love him ultimately above all as our ultimate hope. Well, finally this morning, we see the ultimate problem of the human heart still at work in the hearts of Israel. This is the third hatred of God. It shows us what he loves and it shows us that he absolutely, emphatically loves himself. He so loves his own glory that he hates, he has a seething hatred for the idolatry of false worship. This was central to Israel's problem. It was central to their discipline. It's central to their history. And in fact, if I'm honest, it's central to mine because I have a tendency to be lured away in all these different directions. But God is faithful to keep us And we want to stay as true worshipers of His. This is the ultimate problem. It's the ultimate problem of which the first two ills were merely symptoms. And it's what reminds us that the ultimate issue of the life, of our lives, is our hearts. What's going on in our hearts? Where are our hearts aligned? Where is our true allegiance? Who are we striving to be like? It seems crazy when we read these things, but we know them in our own experience, and our own lives, our own tendency to be drawn away. But despite, for Israel, despite the glorious realities of God's electing, preserving, justifying, keeping, satisfying grace, his ultimate faithfulness to them, the lures of false worship Routinely plagued them. You remember, even in Exodus 24, where Moses is going to the, to the, onto the mountain so that he can receive the, the law of their covenant God, the law which would be written on their hearts, which would guide them and teach them about their God and how they could know Him, and then lead them toward the ultimate sacrifice for their sin, who is Christ. He's gone for 40 days and he comes down and he finds that all of the people are worshiping a golden calf. 40 days, a little over a month. He goes up on the mountain and they're afraid he's not going to return and so they start scrambling to find some other God in the insanity of it all who could lead them. And their idea is Let's make a golden calf because that's what others have done around us. Maybe we should do the same. Even when Moses comes down and asks Aaron about it, he tries to to hide it saying, we just threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And we thought, well, that must be our God. If nothing else, that ought to show us just how easy it is to be distracted from the true God. It makes no sense. The glorious realities that we have come into in Christ, and yet it doesn't make any sense, but it's true that we can be lured away. It was like they had hit their heads, like they had become concussed and disoriented. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know where their God was. In a moment, amnesia kicked in, and they're off chasing after other gods, this is a serious warning to us then. Because we're capable of the very same thing. You think about your life, you think about mine, given the right pressures, the right hardships, the right disappointments or even the right successes. We so quickly forget our friends. We forget our church. We forget our God. And yes, It can happen to you. And yes, it can happen to me. So we should watch out. In fact, the Bible is so serious, talks quite specifically about this very thing. Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I have asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food that is my portion. Why? That I may not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I may not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you see how easily it can go both directions? We're kind of hemmed in by this. If things go really poorly It tempts us to profane our God and to chase after other solutions to our problems, to our lives. But even if things go really well, there is an equal, opposite danger that when that happens, we just might forget our God. I think that's a cycle that we see in the nation of Israel. I think it's a cycle that we see in this text. That this is where it always begins. It's a kind of cycle of remaining unbelief. It starts with a drifting unbelief. Then for the nation of Israel, and often for us, it leads to the love of the, the good life. The American dream. And then that leads to offenses against other people so that so that they could get ahead so that we could get ahead and in the end what happens all of those enjoyments all of the loot all of the self-exaltation it just leads to greater unbelief and the cycle begins again so what is the solution to a cycle like that the solution is belief it's continuing to foster in our hearts together as a church an undying love and belief and trust and dependence upon our God when all of these chirping temptations and lures in the world are trying to distract us and take us over here. Watch out. Possessions, people, dreams. Dreams are probably worst of all. They all can be lures away. And then we drift away from our God. We pray this morning that that may never be the case. And we, we know that this begins by faith in Christ. We want to pray wisely. I want to encourage you even this week to pray this prayer that you read in Proverbs 37 through 9. Have you ever prayed this before? Oh, God, keep me from the lies of this world and satisfy me with yourself and nothing more. It's a fantastic prayer. But ultimately, all of this begins by faith in Christ. And so there may be someone who watches the recording of this service this week or someone who's here who needs to come to Christ. You need to trust in Christ truly, fully, repenting of your sin and and falling before him, that he would become your king, that he would be the one that you would serve and and, and worship and be satisfied by and glorify with your life, that you would chase after him as the ultimate treasure of all, and that then in a world of treasures, we would remain single-minded on what God is up to in us, in our church, In our world, so that we could join him, so that we could be used by him. That is our prayer this morning. As we prepare to worship uh, in song again, let me ask you to stand with me as we pray and we ask God to do this work in us that we so desperately need. Our Father in heaven, we come to you uh, having read and studied a convicting text of scripture yet again. One that, that warns us about the, the tendency of our own hearts to drift from you. That even within our hearts, there is remaining sin. There's, there are pockets of, of unbelief that can be fed and grow and distract us from you as our ultimate treasure. And so, God, we pray that you would cause us to be enamored with you that we would fight against all of the shiny objects of this world, both material and spiritual, all of the things that would lead us to exalt ourselves and, and to, to be on a quest to, to get our own, but that we would glorify you, that you would be our ultimate treasure, we pray. We pray that you would work this in our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would put us on guard against the world, the flesh, and the devil with gladness because we want to serve you and know you and glorify you in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.